Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. We come to a new section this morning. I want to read the section for us, and then we'll have a word of prayer. It's a rather lengthy section. It takes us all the way to the end of chapter 12, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 5 through chapter 12 and verse 6. Hear God's word. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him. To take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy, and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by strength of my hand I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of the peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there is none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord, God of hosts, will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy both soul and body and it will be as when a sick man wastes away the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day The remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, 
For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Aath. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galam. Give attention, O Laesha, O poor Anathoth. Midmia is in flight. The inhabitants of Gibbon flee for safety. This very day, he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, The Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." And that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. And those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass harass Ephraim. 
But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria, For the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray together. <coughs> Father, what a, what a text that moves from the despair of judgment to the sound of praise and thanksgiving <coughs> to the Holy One. Of Israel. Father, I pray this morning as we begin looking at such a passage that you would be our teacher, that you would humble our hearts, that you would encourage our spirit, that you would cause those who are hardened in sin to flee from the wrath to come. And that you would take the beleaguered saint and that you would lift their eyes to things that are above, specifically to Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God above. Bless you, Father, for your clear reproofs of sin and your rich pictures of hope. Thank you for your word. It's so fitting to what we need. For sin is an ever-present reality. And it hardens our hearts. And it takes us away from you. It deadens our ears to hearing the word of God. And we need to hear the reproofs of scripture to bring us to Christ. And in a world that's so filled with enemies, this valley of the shadow of death We need to be reminded of the redeeming work of our shepherd. So we pray that you would help us as we come to this text this day. Encourage our hearts in the gospel. Convict them by your law. Overwhelm us with the glory of you. We thank you, Father, for this time we have here. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
This, uh, this section of the book of Isaiah that we've been in for a couple of months now, probably ever since 7-1, chapter 7, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 12, in chapter 12, verse 6, has been referred to by some as the book of Emmanuel. We began a little while back looking at... Uh, at this, uh, at this section, kind of under the heading of, of kingdom lessons from children. And we saw Isaiah having several different children that he presented to, uh, to Ahaz. And these uh, children were for signs and portents. Uh, they were to give Ahaz a sense of what was to happen in the coming days if he repented, what was to happen in the coming days if he hardened his heart against God. And the central driving child of the entire thing is kind of kind of highlighted in that name that is given there in Isaiah chapter 7, the name of Emmanuel. The idea that God is with us. And for those who harden their hearts, the fact that God is with us is a terrifying reality. Because judgment will fall on such a one. For the one who repents and the one who believes, the one who trusts in God, the fact that God is with us should be a comfort should be an encouragement. And here is Ahaz. Ahaz, this representative figure, a kingly figure, but a representative figure nonetheless of the whole of the nation. The people, by and large, like Ahaz, are failing to trust in God. And the presence of God being with them will be for them a great judgment. And we come to that even more so, more pointedly today in chapter 10, when we, 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 we come to Assyria that is described as the rod of God's anger. The primary way that God will bring this discipline, this punishment upon his people, is he will bring it through the nation of Assyria. But this is not going to be the final word. Because the final word is going to be seen is that God is going to use Assyria for the purging of God's people. He will preserve a remnant and he will send a future deliverer, not Ahaz, but a future king who will come. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon him and he will indeed restore all the remnant of God's people, setting up his people there in chapter 12 to be filled with thanksgiving and filled with praise. Well, as we kind of come at this long text today, I was very tempted uh, to, uh, to preach this whole text, and I thought, that's just, it's just too much. There's no way. So what I want to do to kind of appease myself a little bit, because I want to preach the whole thing, we're going to come at this text three different ways, all right? One, we're going to look at the whole passage very quickly, kind of sweeping through. So we're going to look from 10.5 to 12.6. So if you're making notes on your page or whatever, three basic approaches we're going to take. One is just to look at the whole sweep from 10.5 to 12.6. And I already read that for us, so we're going to read the whole thing again. But I want to give you some, some main points to kind of highlight the structure of where that's going to go. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to come back and we're going to look at chapter 10, verse 5 again. And we're only going to go to the end of that chapter, verse 34. And I want to show you how that chapter kind of unfolds. And then we're going to narrow our focus down a little bit, a third thing. And I want us to look at chapter 10, verses 12 through 27. 10, 12 through 10, 27. So that's kind of a little roadmap for you of where, where we're going to go. 10.5 to 12.6, big picture. 10.5 to 10.34, more narrow window. And then focus in on verses 12 through 27. And in that section of 12 through 27, um, God is giving the people two reminders that he wants them to latch on to 
as this ride begins. And it's going to be quite a ride, uh, this judgment that God, God's going to bring upon the people. And we're actually going to find out as we move through Isaiah, the judgment of Assyria doesn't actually come until the leadership of Hezekiah. In chapters 36 and 37, later on in the book, that's when Assyria actually comes and begins to, to knock at the door of Jerusalem. At this point, this is all somewhat prophetic. He's speaking ahead of what's going to happen in the, the, the months and, and even, even the years to come. Well, thinking in terms of 10.5 through 12.6, there are three things that kind of break up the broad picture. And I would, I would kind of put them under three headings. And the first heading is the, the sovereign, the sovereign God. And this is in chapter 10, verse 5, through chapter 10, verse 34. The sovereign God. And then in chapter 11, the entirety of the chapter, the heading that I would give to that is the shepherd. The shepherd that comes and cares for his people and brings his people back together. He defeats their enemies and he brings them back together. And then in chapter 12, we have this picture of a song. We have the sovereign, we have the shepherd, and we have the song. At the end of all of this, God is leading his people to a sense of trust and faithful reliance in which they will express in terms of worship. They will give thanks to God. They will give praise to God. So thinking in terms of the sovereign, this is in chapter 10, verse 5, through chapter 10, verse 34. And the idea of God being sovereign here, we're going to see that God is sovereign over the appointment of Assyria, but he's also sovereign over the destruction of Assyria. The same rod that he appoints is a rod that in turn will be turned back on them, and he will use that very rod, that very axe, and he will, he will hew them down. All right? God rules over this wicked nation. And he's going to say several things about them and to them. In terms of the shepherd, we come in chapter 11 and verses 1 to 16. We find that though there's no help in current leadership, Ahaz, and even future leadership, Hezekiah, as good of a king as he was, he was still found to be sinful. The true hope and help of the people will be found in another who will be from the root. This is interesting to me. He'll be from the root of Jesse, as described in chapter 11, verse 1. And he will be, in verse 10, the root of Jesse. Now, how can you be both from the root of Jesse, after Jesse, and the root of Jesse, before Jesse? Well, let your mind kind of chew on that for maybe a week or two, and we'll come back to that. Makes me think of the conversation Jesus had with the religious leaders. How can David call him what? Lord. And, but, uh, you know, if he comes after him. And so, well, well, we'll come back there. You can see my desire just to jump ahead to chapter 11, but we've got chapter 10. And God wrote that chapter too, so we need to, we need to look at that a little bit. And then finally, the song... Once, once God uses this wicked nation to judge his people and purge them and deliver a remnant and he judges that nation and he points the people to this one who is both from the root and the root of Jesse, he leads his people to a sense of trust in their true king, their true deliverer, and that is leading them to a time of worship in chapter 12. So that's kind of, that's kind of the big picture of, of where we're going to go. So let's back up a little bit, all right? And let's focus in on this idea 
of Assyria in chapter 10, verse 5, all the way to the end, verse 34. And this is going to take us a little longer than just looking over those three things. Um, A couple things to kind of note, and let's just kind of work our way through the passage. First, beginning in chapter 10, verse 5, through verse 11. This is God's appointment regarding Assyria as his rod and his staff. That's the language that God uses. And this rod and staff language, uh, for those of you homeschoolers or whatever, this is not rod and staff, the the Mennonite uh, 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 curriculum people. Some of you are like, what is that even about? And uh, they're a curriculum publisher. And a good way the Anabaptists get into uh, (laughs) homeschooling, I suppose. But uh, the, the rod and the staff. Assyria is referred to as the rod and the staff of God. But interestingly, later in chapter 11, there's another rod. There's another one who's going to come with a rod. He's going to destroy. And he's also going to guide and protect and keep and gather. And this, this is what kind of led me to think in terms of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. His rod and staff, they what? They comfort me. These, these instruments that a shepherd will carry, a, a long stick and then a shorter kind of a club and a long stick with like a hook on it. You know, you've seen the little pictures or whatever, maybe in your little kid's Bible. Don't raise your hand if you're an adult and you have one of those today. But, you know, the shepherd uses the, 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 the stick with the little crook at the end to kind of get the sheep, that must have hurt, get the sheep out of a dangerous spot or the club, and he, he defends off the, he fends off the wolves and, and the different attackers. Well, <clears throat> there's two images here given of a rod and a staff. The rod and the staff, on the one hand, are the instruments by which God will bring judgment on his people and will bring judgment on the judged, And the rod and the staff also become something that protect his people and deliver his people and bring them together. But here in chapter 10, we see God's rod and staff being the people of Assyria. And in verses 5 to 11, we see that God appoints Assyria as his rod and staff. Now, why would he do such a thing? Why would God take a foreign, pagan, wicked people... And appoint them to judge his own people. Well, we're not the first ones to ask such a question. You might recall the prophet Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk asked the same question several years later. And and, 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 and Israel and Judah have been beaten from pillar to post by Assyria. And Habakkuk is, is, is overwhelmed and he doesn't understand why. Why is it so bad for the people? And God says, don't worry, I'm going to send the Chaldeans in. I'm going to send the Babylonians in, and they're going to take care of your situation. And Habakkuk's like, seriously, you're going to bring the Babylonians in? They're going to conquer our conquerors, and then they're going to conquer us? This just can't be right. And the message driving through Habakkuk over and over again that the New Testament picks up on all the time is the righteous will what? Will live by faith. What are you supposed to do, Habakkuk? In the midst of things you don't understand, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to trust God. You're supposed to rely upon Him. And this becomes that paradigm in the New Testament for the way that a man is received and made righteous before God by faith and by faith alone. Well, here we have in Isaiah chapter 10, Isaiah bringing a message that God has appointed, God has appointed this wicked people to be his rod and his staff. Notice what it says in verse 6. Against a godless nation I send him, 
And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Who is this? The people of my wrath. Judah. Israel. Northern kingdom. Southern kingdom. The whole broad context of Isaiah's ministry. They they are to come in and they are to take spoil, seize plunder, and tread them down. Now, Assyria doesn't get all this. Assyria just thinks it's what? Assyria just thinks it's the big kid on the block. It's the powerful nation. It's doing its own thing. It's doing what it's done many times before. It's just going into a smaller nation to lay siege and conquest. Notice what happens in verse 7. But he, and this he, is Assyria. He does not so intend, and his heart does not think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. God's intention in sending Assyria in as his rod and his staff is to take spoil, seize plunder, and to tread them down, to bring discipline and punishment upon them. But God's intention in sending Assyria in is not the utter destruction of his people. God has further purposes in mind, which Assyria does not know of. But Assyria comes in and seeks to do what? In a more extreme approach, it says, look, I I just want to destroy this people. Notice what he says in verse 8. Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? These are other nations, other kingdoms that Assyria had laid conquest of. And it kind of moves from the north, Kalno and Carchemish, further south to Hamath and Arpad, further south to Samaria, 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 Samaria and Damascus. I'm going to get it out there. In other words, the, the, he, Isaiah here, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is kind of, if you will, putting words in the king of Assyria's mouth to give expression to what his intention is. His intention with the southern kingdom of Judah is the same as his intention with Kalno and Carchemish, Hamath and Arpad, Samaria and Damascus. He wants to come all the way into Judah and destroy Jerusalem. Look, says as much down in verse 11. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? The dating of this is rather difficult, but most likely it's sometime after 722 B.C. In 722 B.C., that's when Samaria fell to the northern kingdom of Assyria. So this has already happened. And now he's saying, I want to press in on Judah as well. It is always the intention of the enemies of God's people to destroy God's people. But God has other intentions. I think of the writer of the book of Hebrews who speaks about the discipline of the Lord on his people. It's that we might what? That we might share in his holiness. Now, Sometimes you might think that the discipline of God means that he's just against you. That's not the case. I know it's like that for kids, isn't it? You know, you go to discipline your children. You don't love me. You know, they're on the ground and you feel like a horrible father and you must mean to kill me or whatever. (laughs) You know, remember there were times when I was a kid, I thought my dad might just, he might just do it. He might just lop my head off right there. My, my children know my parents, but they don't really know my parents. (laughs) They know their grandparents. 
And they're different people. They're different people, you know. Uh, it was tough getting 25 cents out of them for allowance when I was little, you know. But now, you want money? Here it comes, you know. You want forgiveness? Here it comes. Forgiveness without repentance, money without anything. Well, they know different people. I'm not sure who those people are that call themselves my parents. But, you know, kids can get like that with, with, with discipline. And, and you think, it's, it's, this, is, this is not really good for me. This is not really help. My parents aren't really for me. But, in fact, they are. But, but Christians are like that with God. We're, we're like that. We, we see the discipline and the chastisements of the Lord for our sins. We understand, our, but it's not, we didn't do anything that bad. God must not be for me. He must be against me. And here, God's people are, are going through um, you know, the proverbial ringer. And they're referred to even as the people of my wrath. What is God doing as a corporate body? They're being purged. Those who are not of faith, those who are not trusting, are indeed being purged away and purged out of the nation. And this remnant will be preserved. A remnant by grace. God has purposes and they will be fulfilled and they are for his glory and they are for the good of his children. Now, as I'm walking through this, I want us to skip a section or two, and I want us to go down to the very end of the chapter. <clears throat> because what happens here in these first few verses is God is pointing to Assyria as his rod and his staff, and they are coming, they are, they are commissioned, if you will, by God to come to that southern kingdom. And then we choke to the end of the chapter to verse 28. And we see them actually moving. We find here God's aim. God's aim regarding the appointment of Assyria as his rod and staff. Look what happens in the last few verses of the chapter. Notice the movement. Now, it'd be easier for you if you probably had like a a map up here. But I want you to get the picture as we read of a progressing army. This is not an army that sends in, you know, B-52 bombers and, uh, and strike fighters or whatever. This is an army that is on foot. This is an army that is in chariot. This is an army that is on horseback. And they're marching down from the north and they're marching down to the south. And there are perhaps hundreds of thousands of them. He has come to Aoth. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah, a Saul, has fled. Do you get the picture of this marching army? Gibeah of Saul sees the marching army. What do they do? What do they do? Do they stay? Do they fight? No, they just abandon the city. They leave. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galam. Give attention, O Laasha, O poor Anathoth. Medmina is in flight. The inhabitants of Gibbon flee for safety. He's coming. He's coming soon. And he's coming quick. And he comes right up to this little city of Nob that we've mentioned several times that's but a mile or so outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem. Now imagine if you were there in Jerusalem and you're there on the walls and you look to the north a mile. You can see a mile and you see the massive Assyrian army that is coming. What do you think's next? They're just going to come and beat down your walls and they're going to come right through the gates. 
This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. This is how far they come. This is how close they come. This is how far south. This is how close they come to the very gates of Jerusalem. Later on, we're going to learn in chapters 36 and 37, 38 about Hezekiah that they actually send some emissaries to go and speak to the men that are on the walls. And they talk to the men that are there. And they taunt them and mock them and say, you know, don't trust, don't trust in God. He's not going to deliver you. Has any other nation been able to deliver themselves, their gods, been able to deliver them from us? No, you need to, you need to pay homage to us now and, and trust in us now because... It's just looking bad for you. What is God going to do? Verses 33 and 34. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. And this is exactly what happens later on, and we'll, we'll save that for later when we get to that time with Hezekiah. But the destruction of Assyria, after this event, Assyria is practically heard from no more. God slays thousands of them, and um, their, their king ends up returning back to Assyria. Eventually he dies. It's a rather bleak picture for the nation. But at this particular point in time, They are at their peak strength. And Jerusalem is just one city that's left. You can imagine, if you think of a a strategy game, if you've ever played like maybe Stratego or something like that, those those of you that are game people or whatever, are Risk and and different games where you have battles all the time. Ben's playing Civilization or whatever. I've never been able to get into that. But different little strategy type games. And you, you fortify different places and you strengthen different areas. Well, well, the southern kingdom was like this. They had all these fortified cities. And one by one here in this list, they're getting picked off over and over. It's as if Jerusalem is the only place that's left. And in one swoop, God comes in and does what? God destroys the oppressor. Now I want you to go back. Back to chapter 10 and verse 12. Now, this is the movement. God has appointed Assyria. Appointed Assyria to be this aggressor against his people. This this rod and this staff that will bring discipline and chastisement upon his people. They have moved all the way to the gate of the city. God then brings them destruction. What is, what is happening in such... Um, an event. Well, verses 12 through 27. Verses 12 through 27 give us a little bit of insight into what God is doing. And in verses 12 through 19, we find an announcement regarding Assyria. He, he pulls the curtain back a little bit and lets us see why it is that God has appointed Assyria and what it is that he's going to do with him. Look in verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. 
For he says, this is the king of Assyria, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures like a bull. I bring down those who sit on thrones. These are the kings that he mentions back earlier in verse 8. Verse 8, uh, the second half, are not all my commander's king. Apparently what, is, what the Syrian king had done, gone in, conquered a people. And I guess if he spared the life of the king, he just put that king in his service. And his king, this king would then be like a, like a, like a vassal king that would come under this, this, this sovereign that would come into a land. And um, he says, my hand, is, my hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there is none that moved a wing or opened a mouth or chirped. As defenseless as a little nest with eggs. I mean, what, what is that mother bird going to do if you want to get in that nest? And it might squawk, it might fly around a little bit. But who's going to win? I mean, unless you're like invading the nest of a condor or something, you know, you're probably going to have some sense of victory here, all right? But you probably wouldn't mess with the nest of a condor. I guess they have nests. Never saw one. But I got these little birds, these little barn swallows, wherever they are outside my house now. They're making a mess out of my porch. They come every year, and we just didn't think fast enough. And they, they, would, have, they would have nothing to say. If I were to go up there, and my little girls would have a lot to say if I went up there and messed with those eggs, all right? But those little birds wouldn't have any power over me. The king of Assyria here says, look, it's just like a, a bird nest. I've found eggs. These nations are like little eggs, and I've just reached in and I've taken them all. But what's happening here? This is just the pride and arrogance of the king of Assyria's heart, and God is going to bring judgment upon him. Shall the axe, verse 15, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Look back in verse 5. Assyria is the rod of my anger, and the staff in their hands is my fury. Nations often think that they are what? That they are sovereign. That they have power. But all authority, Romans 13.1 tells us that what? Is appointed by God. If there's any authority, any power, it's been appointed by God. I often think of the, the text in the book of Daniel. Where Nebuchadnezzar is brought to the end of himself and realizes where true power resides. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel, and then we'll look in Daniel 4 to look at Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> this is in response to uh, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and um, Daniel comes in after giving the interpretation of the dream, he reveals the dream, gives the interpretation of the dream, and this dream was given to the king, Daniel says here, uh, blessed be the name, this is in verse 20, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. 
To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have made known to me what was asked, what we ask of you, and you have made known to us this king, this the, the king's matter. God is the one who raises up kings. God is the one who puts down kings. Look over in Daniel chapter four. Daniel chapter 4, the very beginning, Nebuchadnezzar kind of you know, says a little bit that we need to hear in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now that's the lesson that he learns at the end. But first he had to go through quite a bit of pain and suffering. Look toward the end. After he's restored, he's been judged by God seven years. He's crawled around like a beast at the end of the time, at the end of the days. I, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 34, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Why? For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Well, this is exactly what God is doing with the nation of Assyria. God is going to reveal to them that the power was not theirs, the rod was not theirs, the staff was not theirs. They were the rod. They were the staff. They were the one being wielded by God. God then brings them to an end in verse 16 through 19. He says, Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors under his glory. A burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour and his thorns and briars in one day and the glory of the forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy both soul and body and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. How much will be left? Notice verse 19. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In other words, not much. Not much will be left. There's a second point that needs to be stressed in this particular section of verses 12 through 27, and that is a message that God has for his own people. For his own people, he says in verses 20 through 27, in that day a remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. They won't lean on Assyria. Remember, that's what they were doing. They were in the process of making political alliances with foreign lands in the hopes that they might you know, strategically come back to help them in the end. Makes me think of you know, America over the last 30 or 40 years. How many times we made deals with Iraq or with Iran, or with you know Afghanistan, or whatever, Pakistan, or some group over there somewhere. We give them weapons, we give them stuff, and a couple years later we're fighting a battle where we're actually fighting somebody who's shooting us with our own guns that we gave to them. All right. Well, this is the way it is among men. Men often make alliances, and sometimes they're unholy alliances. And here he says, you're no longer going to lean on the one who struck you, but you will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. 
A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck at Midian. Midian, kind of a reference back to Gideon and the deliverance that God made during the days of the judge Gideon at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it up as he did in Egypt. A reference to the days when he delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of the fat. And what's happening here? There is a sense of God's assurance being given to his people in the midst of their great suffering. They would not be brought to a full end, but a remnant was to be preserved. A remnant from Israel, survivors from Jacob, though not much would be left, this would be just the idea. In other words, remember back in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is given a what? He's given a message, and he's told to preach. He's told to preach until the nation is left basically to a stump. This is exactly what happens when Assyria makes advance coming south into the southern kingdom. They, They go through all these fortified cities. They come all the way. The only thing it seems, the only thing is left is what? Jerusalem. Though this is terrible... This is also an indicator of what, where their hope is. Their hope is to be found where? In, in the city of Zion. The city where God causes his name to dwell. The city of the kings. The city of David. Out of which will come their future, their future hope. Now we said at the beginning, we wanted to give kind of a picture of 10.5 all the way down to 12.6. And we looked at that under the heading of the sovereign and the shepherd and the song. We backed up and we looked through chapter 10, verse 5 through 34. And we saw there that God appointed a nation of Assyria to be his rod and staff. But we saw that his aim was not the destruction of his people. His aim was the destruction, rather, of Assyria. And then we came back and looked at verses 12 through 27. And I want to make two points, if you will, or two applications of this particular section. When we looked at 10.5 through 11, and we jumped all the way down to 10.28 through 34, we saw the appointment and the movement of Assyria. They're appointed to be God's rod and staff. They're moving quickly down south. They're coming to the gate of Jerusalem, but then God destroys them. But then we backed up a little bit, and we looked in verses 12 through 27. And the reason we did that is because it seems to me, as I read this passage, that 12 through 27 are, are two, we might, remember when you read, read those Shakespearean plays in school, you had these little asides, somebody kind of came off to the side and said something and explained kind of what was, what was going on. 10, 5 through 11 
and down in 28 through 34, I think that's the movement of the text. That's the, that's the main storyline. God appoints Assyria, they're coming down south, they attack, and then they're destroyed. But stuck in the middle of that longer narrative are these two other sections of the text. Verses 12 through 19 and verses 20 through 27. And in these two sections, or these two little asides, I see two reminders that are being given. One is a reminder to Assyria. Or, more broadly speaking, there's a reminder being given here to any who might be kind of at, a point of, at a point of boasting, at a point of pride. Assyria is said in verse 12 to be arrogant and to arrogant of heart and boastful in their eyes. Arrogant of heart and boastful in their eyes. We mentioned a week or two ago the passage from the book of James, the passage from the book of Peter, that both say that God is what? God is opposed to the proud. Assyria's intentions are cut short in the midst of bringing their own judgment upon this southern kingdom. God reveals that he is the one who rules over them. Even the wicked, the scripture says, even the wicked are created for the day of destruction. Men throughout every age of history, men outside of Christ, men who have refused to repent and come to Christ, they're, 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 they're trapped in the midst of pride and arrogance. They are like the Assyrians. They have arrogant speech and they have boastful looks in their eyes. Well, arrogant speech is an indicator of what? An arrogant heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth does what? The mouth speaks, right? You can tell what's in the heart because you just listen to the mouth. We often speak of the windows. We'll use the, the modern kind of proverb, the windows, the, the windows to the what? The windows to the soul, right? Um, <clears throat> Jesus says something similar to this in the Gospels. If the eye is what? If the eye is black and dark, how deep is the darkness? Ultimately, friends, this is not a lesson in history. This is not a lesson in, and can you leave here and tell us when the kingdom of Assyria conquered uh, the northern kingdom of Syria? Uh, when, did, uh, when did Samaria fall uh, to Sennacherib or whatever? And now you can fill in the blank or you can do a matching test or whatever and you can be done. All these things in the past are marked out. Why? They're for our instruction. All right? <clears throat> the same pride of heart, the same arrogance of speech, the same haughty, boastful look in the eyes that is found in the king of Assyria 
is found in the heart of every person in this room. Every one of us. Every one of us has a heart that's full of sin and boastful and proud. Assyria did not realize God was sovereign until it was far too late. The sovereign Lord of of history, the sovereign Lord of Assyria, is the same sovereign God who rules and reigns over every person's heart in this room. Wicked men should take pause. Wicked women should take pause. Wicked young people should take pause. That God is sovereign over your destruction. You cannot wield, you cannot muster, you cannot manage You cannot manipulate enough power to overwhelm the sovereign God of all things. The God to whom one day you must give an account. The God who is the light of Israel who became a fire and the Holy One of Israel a flame is the same God that all men will one day stand before that the writer of Hebrews says is a consuming fire. You need to pause now. You are not guaranteed today. Some of you who are young think you'll live forever. You won't. And some of you may not live long. Every breath you breathe is borrowed. Every movement of the king of Assyria was a borrowed movement. Every act that he, that he did was, was, a, was, a, was an act that, that was done underneath the control of this mighty God. There are perhaps many lessons, I'm sure, that could be drawn But this one seems to, to just come lively and, and loudly off the page. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Shall the saw magnify itself over him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. How foolish it is for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to boast against the God of heaven and think that they will not be called to account. Every idle word, every cherished lustful thought, every foolish act will one day be brought to judgment and we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
Every last one of us. There is an opportunity for you in the hearing of the word of God to pause and consider if the same arrogance and the same pride and the same boast resides in your heart that resided in the heart of this foolish king that upon his return to his land died. There is also a very hopeful note. The hopeful note is given in the text here in verses 20 through 27 to the people of Israel and the people of Judah, to whom Isaiah was sent to preach. Zion's hopes are rekindled in light of future promised Deliverance. We're actually back here at this particular point in the book to the idea of a remnant that was brought up in chapter 1. In chapter 1 and verse 9, it says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and have become like Gomorrah. It goes on in chapter 1, verse 10, and says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, and give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. In other words, they were in character and in heart like those of Sodom and Gomorrah. But because God is a God of what? God is a God of purpose, and God is a God of grace. And the Lord of hosts left a few survivors. This is exactly what happens in chapter nine, chapter 10 in verses 20 through 27. God points them again to the idea of a remnant. We're helped here a little bit, I think, by the Apostle Paul. It's nice to know that the Apostles used the same Bible that we did. Um, and then they, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, create (laughs) the contents of the New Testament that we have today. In the book of Romans, in chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, it's very clear that Paul has been thinking much on the prophets, in particular Hosea and Isaiah. He's wrestling with the idea in chapter 9 of uh, of the true identity, if you will, of the people of God uh, to the Jewish nation, to Israel. We're given all these amazing promises and covenants and blessings and assurances. And by and large, in Paul's day, the majority of the Jewish people had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So loud and so clear was their direction of Christ as the Messiah that they uh, voted with all their passion and all the affection they could muster that Christ would be crucified. And upon them, Paul says in Thessalonians, the wrath of God then fell. And we see the fullness of that wrath coming along very soon by another nation like Assyria 
by the Romans, used by God once again as rod and staff to bring about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. A destruction from which, by the way, they've never recovered and will never recover. Um, So some looked at Paul in Romans chapter 9 and said, well, it's obvious, it's obvious the word of God has failed. It's obvious all the promises that God has made to his people have absolutely collapsed and they're just no good. And so Paul comes along and says, in in verse 6, he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, as if he's answering some kind of detractor or some kind of opponent. It is not as though the word of God has failed. How can you possibly say that, Paul? The Jewish people as a whole have rejected Christ as the Messiah. The word of God, the promises that he made in the Old Testament, they clearly have failed. Paul says no. Why? Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This is a key text to understand what God is doing in the ministry of the apostles as the gospel spreads from the Jews to the Gentile world. Not all who are descended from Israel, not, who, not all who are of physical descent from the Jews, are truly the Israel of God. Well, what do you mean? Well, let, let me say this a different way, he says in verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. I mean, Abraham had a lot of kids, right? He had several children. But not all are truly children of Abraham just because they physically came from his body. What do you mean? Well, let's make it more clear. Through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. There was a a specificity to the lineage of the promise. For this is what the promise... Excuse me. Verse 8. This means... I'm going to interpret this for us. That it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now just pause there for a moment. I know you've heard this passage before. Some of you may have heard this passage before and you've just dismissed what I'm about to say. Maybe you can anticipate what I'm about to say. Some of you may have never heard this passage before. Paul, Paul is systematically explaining himself over and over again that there might be no misunderstanding of what he's saying. He had said back up in verse 4, They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So they're the ones that get all these things. That leads the opponent to say, well then obviously the word of God is what? It's failed. And Paul says, not at all. It's not all who are descended from Israel that belong to Israel. It's not all the children of Abraham. They're not all children of Abraham just because they're his offspring, his physical offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring will be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. It is as if out of Abraham 
come two things. Out of Abraham becomes, comes a physical lineage. And out of Abraham comes a lineage of promise. We got a physical lineage that comes out of Abraham that eventually results in the children of Israel, the physical nation of the Jews. All right? And from them ultimately will come what? The Messiah. But at the same time, Abraham's also given a what? Abraham's given a promise. And it's not the children of the flesh that are his real kids. It's the children of the promise that are his real kids. Go back over here. Verse 9. Well, just to save time. All right? So two lines. Physical promise. Physical kids, kids of promise. All right? This is a bunch of kids over here. (laughs) This physical line. All right? This promissory line also becomes a big bunch. All right? But it includes not just the physical descendants, the Jewish, the Hebrew people. This over here includes some of those. Paul himself was what? Paul himself was one. But also through this line of promise will expand the gospel message that will go out to all the nations of the world. The Gentiles will come into this also. Now flip over to chapter 9 in verse 25. In verse 24 he says that God has called people from the, not the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And in verse 25, this This idea of Jews and Gentiles together within this line of promise, this idea was foretold by the prophets. He mentions here Hosea. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place that it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. The Gentile people who were not God's people. The nations of the world who were not God's people. Now by grace are going to be called God's very own. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 10. The text that we're looking at. Now Paul, Paul turns it just a little bit. In Isaiah chapter 10, it says, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will what? Will return. Because at that particular time, historically, it was talking about the the, the future return from exile. That would come back into the land. However, Paul is saying, look, that was just a picture of what was to come later. We're not returning. I'm, I'm, I'm a Gentile. I don't return to Israel. I mean, if I went to Israel today, got on a plane, and went to Israel and visited, I wouldn't be returning to Israel, all right? Um, Because I would just be a a visitor, all right? It's not my homeland. So Paul says, look, in this expansion of the gospel message, beyond the Jews to the Gentile as well, it's not about returning to a homeland. It's about returning where? It's about returning to God. It's about being saved. For the Lord will carry out 
His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, listen, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. That's from Isaiah chapter 1 in verses 9 and 10. So what's the message here? The message here is as sure as the sovereign God will bring judgment upon the wicked, for they are appointed for a day of destruction. So God will, to his elect, he will bring them back in. He will redeem them. He will rescue them. Even though they're cut down to this stump-like existence of nothing, from that stump will come a redeemer. From that stump will come a rescuer that will be to the people's redemption and be ultimately to God's praise. Now that kind of leads us into to next time, to chapter 11 and to chapter 12. But friend, I want you to see as we, as we close, there are, there are two messages here. And I've closed my Bible, and you're going to close yours, but don't close your mind, don't close your ears. In this room, in this room, are people who hardened their hearts against God. And we don't want to think that. We don't, we don't want to think that way because, I mean, we, we get together, don't we? Every week. Every week we get together. And I would love to think that just by virtue of the fact that we come into this room and sit down together, that means we're all going to be in heaven when we die. It's just not that easy, is it? It's not that easy. There are some who come every week, and I'm not, and if you sit there and think, oh, he's talking about me, I'm going to come talk to him later because he's talking just about me. I haven't said your name because I don't know who you are because I can't see your heart. You see, it's hearts that are arrogant. It's hearts that are full of pride. And just like we, we looked at that exposition of the catechism at the beginning this morning, um, some of us do pretty well, don't we? Putting on the face we want people to see. We don't just do good on Facebook. We, we do good at church. And we present an image that we want you to see. And you may have a heart that's full of pride and full of arrogance before God. You may have ears that are closed to God. But you, but you come every week. And you do your best to present yourself as one who is concerned with the things of God and righteous. I'll never forget when I was a young boy seeing this probably 75-year-old woman who was a pastor's wife stand at the front of our church to repent of her sins and come to Jesus. She was a pastor's wife. 50 years married, more. Never saved. Benjamin Bedham's wife came to Christ after they were married and after she had been under his preaching for years. And he baptized her. That's an amazing thing. When I, thought, when I found that in the church record books, I was just like stunned. 
Friends, listen, physical presence in a physical building does not mean spiritual reality. You need to take pause and consider your own heart before God. This is a God with whom one day you will give an account. You will be in the very presence of God. And your mouth will be shut. Because he will expose everything and lay it bare at a moment. And you'll have nothing to say. Today is a day that's given you to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is a day that's given you to repent of pride, to repent of arrogance, to repent of false religion, and to come to trust in the Savior. And friend, today is also a day to rejoice. Because in Christ Jesus, those of you who have seen him, those of you who know him, those of you who have come to him, there's great cause for rejoice in the sovereign electing grace of God that has brought you to himself. This is cause for joy and cause for worship. It's a time for you to think again about the Lord Jesus Christ, this this branch that has come out of the stump of Jesse, this one that was even before Jesse, this eternal, glorious Christ who came and humbled himself and lived a righteous life and died a sin-atoning death and was raised again and exalted on high. Why? For the benefit of your sinful soul and for the glory of his Father. But blessing is ours in the gospel. When we come to take the bread and take the cup, we taste and see the goodness of God. (coughs) Friend, today is a day to repent. And today is a day to rejoice. It's not a day about history lessons. We have to study the history lessons. We have to study these things to get those messages. But friend, take today and humble your heart before God. And if it's hard, repent of it. And if it's not broken, ask him to break it. Better to be broken now before God than to be crushed forever. And take time to rejoice. Take time to be thankful for what God did for you. Let's pray. Oh, dear God. I pray for myself and I pray for all of us who are here. God, for those who are here who are lost, for those who are here who know nothing of Christ and his beauty, for those who are hard and impenitent, for those who have arrogance and pride and an unwillingness to come and fall before you, I pray, O God, that you would use your word, that you would by your spirit, that you would pierce their heart, that you would humble them, and that they would come to rejoice in the redemption of Christ, that they would repent of sin and come to rejoice in the forgiving mercy of God. And for those, Father, here who are yours, who you have indeed rescued, who you have delivered from the wrath to come, I pray that you would encourage them today in the gracious work of God 
and saving and making them a part of that remnant of grace. I pray that you, as you encourage your people of old through the ministry of the prophet Isaiah, that this judgment from Assyria would not be the final word. Though they would be cut down to a stump, there would be a future hope. And I pray as that encouragement would stir the hearts of the faithful in their day, like the prophet Habakkuk, that righteous man who lived by faith, among whom Isaiah was one who was numbered. Oh God, might, as they look forward to that coming of Christ, as we, as we look back to how Christ has come, and as we look forward to his coming again, his return, let us rejoice in the gospel. Let us gather today at this table and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I pray, O oh God, that you would convict the godless and that you would comfort the godly. That you would cause both repentance and rejoicing to burst forth from this place today. Father, thank you for the time we have in your word. And we ask, O oh God, for your help. We ask, O oh God, these things in Jesus' name. Amen.